Okay, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Genesis chapter 49. Genesis 49. And I'm just going to read from verse 8. Genesis 49, verse 8. Says Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Let's uh, commit our time to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we can <clears throat> be here this morning, that we can gather around your word and uh, consider the wonderful truths uh, contained therein. Lord, I pray that this morning that you would help us to each come with hearts that are ready to receive your word. I pray, Lord, that you would teach us this morning, you would instruct us through your word, refresh us, and that, Lord, you would be honoured and glorified. Lord, I pray that you would empower me now, enable me through the Spirit, give me wisdom and guidance as I speak. And Lord, I pray that everything I say this morning would be your words, be your thoughts, and that, Lord, you would be honoured, glorified and praised, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> now, of course, we've been uh, considering Jacob's uh, final words <clears throat> unto his sons, his words of blessing and benediction uh, here in chapter 49. And uh, we've looked already at his words to his uh, first three sons, the words to Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. And when we looked at the, the words there to those three, we saw that they weren't exactly full of blessing, were they? You know, as he spoke to each of them, he highlighted and rebuked them for their sinful natures. That was what he concentrated on when he spoke to them. You know, we saw that Reuben was a man who lacked moral restraint. And Simeon and Levi, as we saw last time, were violent, vengeful individuals. And so all three of them, uh, because of their sinful natures, were guilty of committing uh, gross wickedness. And there were resulting consequences for each of them, uh, and for the tribes that bore their name, consequences that came because of their, their sin. And of course, as we saw last time, the consequence for Levi was turned into a blessing because they drew nigh unto God. They drew nigh unto the Lord as a tribe, and so God turned it into a blessing. But now this morning, we come to the fourth son, Judah. And in verse 8, we see that uh, <clears throat> Jacob begins uh, his words here. He says, Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. You know, already the words uh, spoken to Judah are different, aren't they? Already there's something very different about the words that he has for Judah compared to what he said to Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. You know, for each of them, there was nothing praiseworthy about their, uh, their character. There was nothing praiseworthy about their actions, but here as Jacob now speaks to Judah immediately, one of the very first things he says is, Thou shalt be praised. And this is interesting because, you know, Judah's name itself actually means praise. And so he's saying that Judah is going to live up to his name. If you go back to Genesis 29 just quickly. <clears throat> In Genesis 29, we see that his mother Leah gave him this name, uh, giving praise unto the Lord. In Genesis 29 and verse 35, it says, And she conceived again and bare a son, and she said, Now will I praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. 
and left bearing. And so his name means praise. He was named praise, giving glory unto God for his goodness okay, by his mother Leah. And see, we see that his father Jacob declares that Judah is going to live up to his name. And indeed, his brethren are going to praise God for the work that the Lord is going to do through him and the tribe bearing his name. And this is interesting because, you see, Judah wasn't exactly perfect. He wasn't exactly perfect by any means. You know, it's not like the first three were terrible and Judah was somehow an angel. He wasn't. You know, his actions had not always been praiseworthy. In Genesis chapter 37, it was Judah who suggested they sell Joseph as a slave so they might make a profit, might make a little bit of money on the side. And so he was the one who instigated that whole idea of selling their brother to the Midianite merchants and taking him down into Egypt. That was his idea. You know, it might have ultimately saved his life, but it was still evil. It was evil to do this to his own brother. You know, his actions towards his daughter-in-law Tamar in Genesis 38 were also uh, uh, not praiseworthy. If you remember the story there, Tamar, of course, was uh, married to his eldest son, Ur, that the Lord had struck uh, down Ur and killed him because of his sin, his wickedness. And Tamar was left without any children. And Jacob had promised, uh, Judah, sorry, Judah had promised that he would give his youngest son, uh, Shelah, unto her as, you know, husband when he was old enough so that she might have children. But Judah failed to keep that promise. And so Tamar had disguised herself as a prostitute. She'd sat in the way and Judah had gone in under her, committed adultery with her, he sinned with her. And two twin boys were the result of that relationship and so his actions there were certainly not praiseworthy either he hasn't done much to uh, highlight how good he is in the eyes of God has he but Judah somewhat redeemed himself later in life especially with his protection of Benjamin you know it was Judah who offered his life as surety for Benjamins when they returned back to Egypt just go to Genesis 43 with me chapter 43 <clears throat> Genesis 43 and verse 8, it says, And Judah said unto Israel, his father, send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and thou, and also our little ones. I will be surety for him. Of my hand shalt thou require him, if I bring him not unto thee, and set him before thee, then let me bear the blame forever. And so Judah was the one who stepped forward and he said, I'll give myself as surety. Let Benjamin go with us back down into Egypt. And of course, when they came to Egypt and Benjamin was accused of stealing Joseph's cup, was found in his sack, and Benjamin was threatened with slavery as punishment, Judah was the one who stepped forward and said, no, I'll take Benjamin's place. I'll stay as a slave instead of him. He offered his life for Benjamin's. And so he had redeemed himself somewhat by these actions. And then, of course, he was the brother who took the lead when it came to repentance of their sin, of their wickedness against Joseph. You know, he was the one who humbled himself and declared in Genesis 44 and verse 16, he said, God hath found out the iniquity of thy servants. You see, he was the one who led the way when it came to repentance, admitting their sin before God. 
The point is, through all these acts and indeed others, Judah had redeemed himself in the eyes of his father and more importantly, in the eyes of God. He'd drawn near unto God. He dealt with his sin and he'd, he'd grown closer unto the Lord. You know, Judah was by no means a man of perfect character, but the difference between him and his brothers was clear. He had sought to make things right with his father and, of course, before God. And this meant that the prophecy concerning him and concerning his tribe is now one of blessing. It's all of blessing here to Judah. The tribe bearing his name would receive much praise and Jacob here declares that this praise would come for four reasons. And as we look at these reasons this morning, we see that each of these finds an ultimate fulfillment in none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, here we see that Judah will be a very, uh, sorry, a victorious, successful tribe. Judah will be victorious and successful. Verse 8, it says, Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. The first thing that Jacob tells us here about Judah is that his hand will be in the neck of his enemies. Now to put your hand in or on the neck of your enemies is to stand victorious over them. It's, a, it's an image that portrays the enemy as conquered defeated, subdued, under your control, under your power. And so basically, this was a prophecy that the tribe of Judah and the leaders that would come from the tribe of Judah would be very successful in war. You know, it was a prophecy that they would subdue their enemies before them. It describes the warlike character of the tribe. And this prophecy was fulfilled in various ways. You know, when they first arrived in the land of Canaan, it was Judah who was given their lot first and was instructed by God to go up first of all and defeat the enemy. Turn to Judges chapter 1 with me. In Judges 1 verse 1... It says, Now after the death of Joshua, it came to pass, so the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall go up for us against the Canaanites first to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have delivered the land into his hand. And so Judah was the one instructed by the Lord, first of all, to go up. And the Lord says, I've delivered the land into his hand. And we, if you read on, we see that Judah goes up, he obeys. And the tribe subdues the enemy before them. And so they were the very first ones to lay their hand, if you like, upon the neck of their enemies there in the land of Canaan. And we also see this prophecy fulfilled in David, Israel's greatest king, who of course is from none other than the tribe of Judah. Under David's leadership, all of Israel's enemies were subdued. And David testifies to that in Psalm 18. Just turn over there. In Psalm 18 and verse 40, Psalm 18 verse 40 says, Thou hast also given me the necks of mine enemies, that I might destroy them 
that hate me. David testifies that God had given him the necks of his enemies, uses the exact same wording as we find in Genesis 49, this same idea. His hand was upon the necks of his enemies. David subdued the enemies of Israel. Indeed, under his leadership, Israel had the most success. It was the time when they were in the the most powerful position. And when David died and passed the throne to his son Solomon, it was a time of peace because he had subdued all the enemies all around, because they were under his control. So we see it fulfilled in David, but you know, most importantly, we see the greatest fulfillment of this prophecy in none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, when our Lord and Savior came to earth, he came to conquer the enemy. He came to earth and he conquered the greatest enemy of all, sin and death. 1 Corinthians 15 testifies to that. Just turn there, 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15 and verse uh, 55, says, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord and Savior came to earth to win the victory, and he has won the victory over sin and death. It's through him that we have the victory. We have eternal life. We have salvation. And of course, one day, Revelation 19 describes how Christ will return as the warrior king, and he will subdue all enemies before him. Just turn there with me, Revelation 19. I know we're turning to a few passages this morning. Revelation 19. And verse 11. Revelation 19, verse 11, it says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were aflame, a fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no man knew but himself, and was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the enemies which were in heaven followed, sorry, the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses clothed in fine linen, uh, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath in his vesture and on his thigh an aim ridden, King of kings and Lord of lords. Revelation 19 describes how Christ will one day return as the warrior king, and he will subdue all enemies before him. See, that day is yet coming. That day is coming when Christ will return. And he'll put his hand upon the neck of his enemies. And so this prophecy is perfectly fulfilled in Christ. We see, secondly, that the tribe of Judah is said to be strong and powerful. Jacob says there will be a strong and powerful tribe. Go back there with me to verse 9. Genesis 49 and verse 9. It says, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down, he couched uh, as a lion and as an old lion who shall rouse him up. In verse 9, Jacob now secondly describes Judah using the imagery of a lion. And this second imagery is used to show Judah's strength. 
their power. The lion, of course, is often referred to as being the king of beasts, the king of the jungle. And that's because its power is seen to be superior to other beasts. And that's the imagery used here. Okay? The lion is used to show Judah's superior power and strength. And we read here at the start of verse 9, it says, Judah is a lion's whelp. And the word whelp here speaks of a young lion. But it's not in the sense that Judah is a cub, okay, and therefore defenseless, weak. No, it's the idea that Judah is a young, mature lion in the height of his strength, in the height of his, his ability, his power. The imagery then continues. As Jacob says there, he says, Judah is a lion's whelp from the prey, my son, thou art gone up. So Jacob now describes Judah as a lion going up to the mountains and finding its prey and catching its prey, killing its prey. And after killing its prey, the lion is said to return to its den. Verse 9 there again, it continues on. It says, He stooped down and couched as, an, as a lion and as an old lion. And so the image now is of the lion having returned to its den after the kill, returned to its den with its prey, couched over its prey in its den. It's resting after the kill. And Jacob asks the question there at the end of verse 9. He says, Who shall rouse him up? In other words, who would dare disturb a lion from its place of power and rest? Disturb a lion in its den. And Matthew Henry sums up well for us the imagery here. What is, what is Jacob trying to say about Judah here with these words? He says this, By this it is foretold that the tribe of Judah would become very formidable and should not only obtain great victories, but should peaceably and quietly enjoy what was obtained by those victories. That they should make war, not for the sake of war, but for the sake of peace. Judah is compared not to a lion rampant, always tearing, always raging, but to a lion enjoying the satisfaction of his power and success. And that's the point here. Judah is described as a lion that's gone up to the mountains, killed its prey and returned to its den, satisfied with its power, resting in its place of authority. And in fulfillment of this, the tribe of Judah did indeed become powerful, a powerful, strong tribe when they settled in the land. They occupied the largest portion of land and they became the most influential tribe. We see this imagery more importantly fulfilled in the times of David. This imagery of the lion. You know, under David's leadership, as we already said, the enemies were subdued. You know, they were like a lion. They'd gone out and killed the prey. But then they also enjoyed the power and strength that came with that victory. You know, it was dangerous during the times that David was upon his throne for the enemy to provoke Israel. It was like provoking a lion in its den. It was dangerous to rouse them. But of course, ultimately, this is once more perfectly fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 5 alludes to this very idea. Revelation chapter 5. <clears throat> Revelation 5 and verse 5. It says, And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals 
thereof. Here we see the Lord Jesus Christ called the Lion of Judah. He is the fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy. He is the Lion of Judah. And he came to earth, as we talked about earlier, he came to earth and he conquered his prey. And now the Lord, if you like, has returned to heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's like a lion who's returned to his den. He's conquered his enemies and now he sits in his place of power. He sits in his place of authority. He's at rest. And you know, to despise Christ's authority, to despise his power, is like provoking a lion in his den. Go to Hebrews 10 with me just quickly. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10 and verse 28 says, He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore a punishment suppose ye? Shall he be thought worthy, who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace? You see, the point is, the Lord has indeed conquered he has prevailed and to despise his authority to despise what he has done is a dangerous thing indeed one day christ will rise from his place in heaven he will rise and he will return and he will deal with those who have rejected his authority and none should be able to stand before him like a lion roused from his den and that is the context of revelation 5 verse 5 where it says that christ is the lion of judah it's in the context of the fact that Christ is the one who is worthy to open the seven seals and to bring judgment upon the earth. The Lion of Judah will rise and bring judgments upon the earth, upon those who have rejected him and his authority. We see thirdly now that Jacob declares that the tribe of Judah will be the ruling tribe, the royal ruling tribe. Go back there to Genesis 49. <clears throat> and verse 10 it says the scepter shall not depart from judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until shiloh come and unto him shall the gathering of the people be jacob next declares that not only will judah be victorious and be a powerful tribe but judah will also be the ruling tribe it's from them that the kings and the rulers will primarily come and verse 8 alluded to this, at the end of verse 8 there it says, Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. And so he's already alluded to this idea that the others will bow before him. But it's more fully developed for us here in verse 10. Where we're told the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Now the scepter of course is the symbol of leadership isn't it? It's the symbol of rule. It's in the hand of the king. And the scepter wasn't actually given unto the tribe of Judah straight away, was it? You know, before David came to the throne, the, the leaders had come from other tribes. Moses was from the tribe of Levi, Joshua from Ephraim, Gideon from Manasseh, Samson from Dan, Samuel from Ephraim, and King Saul was from Benjamin. So before this, the, the scepter, if you like, had been in the hand of other tribes. But when David became king, the scepter passed to Judah and it never left Judah's hand. You know, this was almost 
640 years after Jacob made this prophecy. It's an incredible prophecy. 640 years after he made this prophecy, finally David becomes king and the scepter is passed to Judah. And Judah becomes the ruling tribe from that point onwards. And as it says there in the verse, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. The scepter did not depart from Judah. The right to rule belonged to them. And the next phrase in the verse, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, adds to this idea of rule. The word lawgiver here seems to speak of the one who decrees or to speak of any ruler, any governor. Someone speaking with authority being in charge, being the, the one who oversees the law. And the phrase between his feet seems to refer to Judah's seed. And so it's saying that the ruler, any ruler, governor will come from Judah. And so this adds the idea that the governors and rulers would come from the tribe of Judah. And it seems to refer to the times when Israel was under the rule of other nations, under the rule of the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. During these times when Israel didn't have a king, the lawgiver, the one who was the governor, the one in the position of authority, would still be from the seed of Judah. And this prophecy was fulfilled. Matthew Henry writes this, Until the captivity, all along from David's time, the scepter was in Judah, and subsequently the governors of Judah were of that tribe. Another commentator adds this, From David until the Herods, a prince of Judah, was head over Israel. Even Daniel, in captivity, was from Judah. And so the point is, this prophecy was fulfilled. The scepter was in Judah's hand, it continued there, and the governors came from the tribe of Judah, primarily. And we're told that this would continue, Jacob says this would continue until Shiloh come. Verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. Shiloh here is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. We're told that the scepter, the lawgiver, would continue to come from Judah until Shiloh come. And the message here is not that when Shiloh comes, when the Messiah comes, Judah will lose the scepter but rather that in Shiloh, in the Messiah, the throne will have its climax, its peak. He is the last to hold the scepter because he is the eternal king. And the name Shiloh here seems to be related to the Hebrew word for peace. And so many believe that it means the one who brings peace. It perfectly describes the Lord Jesus Christ, doesn't it? Christ is the Prince of Peace. Isaiah 9 tells us that. He's the Prince of Peace. When Christ was born, the angels declared from heaven, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. It's in Him and Him alone that man finds true and lasting peace. Christ is Shiloh, the one who brings peace. And Jacob then finishes the verse with the words, and unto Him shall the gathering of the people be. Unto him, unto Shiloh, shall the gathering of the people be. This is a declaration that all people, from all nations, not just the Jews, all people will be drawn unto him. 
and that they will bow before him and acknowledge his authority. The word translated, the gathering here, it actually speaks of obedience. It speaks of a willing homage unto him. And of course, this is fulfilled through the gospel, is it not? It's fulfilled through the gospel message as it goes out throughout the world and people are drawn to the gospel message and believe in the Lord. They're placing their faith and trust in him and they acknowledge him as king, as Lord. They bow the knee. They pay willing homage unto him. Each and every one of us who are saved are fulfilling this prophecy. Gathering, the gathering of the people unto him. And indeed one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Philippians 2, just turn there. Philippians 2, verse 10. We'll start in verse 9. It says, Wherefore God hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Indeed, Christ is King. He is the Messiah. He is Shiloh. And one day all people will acknowledge His rule, acknowledge His authority finally we see that jacob declares that the tribe will be fruitful and prosperous go back there genesis 49 and verse 11 this is binding his fowl unto <coughs> fall, sorry unto the vine and his ass is cold unto the choice vine he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes his eyes shall be red with wine and his teeth white with milk. Finally, now Jacob declares that Judah will be a very prosperous, successful tribe. We read in verse 11, it says, Binding his foal unto the vine, and his ass's colt unto the choice vine. The meaning here is that there will be such an abundance of vines in the land that they will tether their animals unto them. And this is something you simply wouldn't normally do because what's the animal going to do it's going to pull your vine over it's going to eat your vine it's going to destroy the grapes it's going to ruin it and so the idea here is that there is such an abundance that it doesn't matter such an abundance that the people tie their their animals up to their vines and it doesn't matter and he adds to this thought by then declaring he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes These words express the idea that there will be such an abundance of grapes, such an abundance of wine, they'll they'll use wine instead of water. They'll use wine to wash their clothes. They've got so much. They've got excess. Again, this is not meant to be taken literally. I mean, that's obvious. This is hyperbolic language. It's stressing the abundance. There is so much that they could use it instead of water. So much is their prosperity. So much is the abundance in their land. And then finally, Jacob declares there in verse 12, he says, His eyes shall be red with wine, and his teeth white with milk. Now the words, his eyes shall be red with wine, are not meant to declare that they're going to be drunkards. That the tribe of Judah will be red with, and yet their eyes red because they've been at the wine too much. That's not the idea here. Rather, it's speaking about the fact that they'll have good health from the abundance of their land. It speaks of a sparkling brilliance in their eyes. 
It speaks of good health just like the last phrase there, uh, teeth white with milk. speaks of good, healthy, strong teeth. It speaks of health. There is an abundance of milk in the land producing healthy white teeth. There's an abundance of wine. There's a sparkle in their eyes. There's health to the people. One commentator summed it up well. He said, wine as plentiful as water, so that the men of that tribe should be very healthy and lively. Their eyes brisk and sparkling, their teeth white. You see, through all this, Jacob is declaring the prosperity of the tribe of Judah. And indeed, the prophecy was fulfilled. You know, when Judah came into the land, they possessed some of the best land. They had some of the best vineyards there in their lands. They were indeed a very prosperous tribe. But of course, once more, we see the ultimate fulfillment in Christ. The Lion of Judah, Shiloh. When he returns to earth and he rules and reigns here on earth for a thousand years, the abundance throughout his kingdom will be like hasn't been seen before, except for the Garden of Eden. Creation will be restored and people will enjoy health. They'll enjoy prosperity with him as king. And that's the ultimate fulfillment of these wonderful words of prosperity. It will be fulfilled in Christ as he rules and reigns here on earth. You know, the prophecy given here to Judah is truly remarkable. It's one of great blessing for Judah to hear these words. You know, Jacob declares that Judah would rise to be a victorious, successful tribe, a strong, powerful tribe the ruling tribe and a prosperous tribe. You know, more wonderful than that is the fact that ultimately these things point to Christ. They point to him. They point to his finished work there on the cross. And they point to his work yet in the future. Now, it's wonderful to see God's eternal plan revealed in such a magnificent way here in the Old Testament. Beloved, let us praise God this morning for the fulfillment of that prophecy. The one who fulfills it, our Savior, the Lion of Judah, Shiloh, the Prince of Peace. Beloved, let us praise God this morning for all that he has done and for all that he will do yet in the future. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, for these wonderful prophecies here in the Old Testament. These words which are so wonderfully, gloriously fulfilled in Christ. Our Saviour, the Lion of Judah, Shiloh, the Prince of Peace. Lord, I pray that this morning we would be encouraged, we'd be refreshed by your word, and that, Lord, we would leave singing your praises, giving all glory and honour unto your name. For you are indeed a great, big, wonderful God. You are indeed on your throne. You are in control, and we, we thank you and we praise you for that. We pray you bless now as we close. As we come back again this evening, we pray in Jesus' name.